This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. When people talk about Reformed theology, they often talk about it as though Reformed theology is all head with no heart. Well, that's just not true. What is true is that in our tradition, the life of the mind is valued, but so is the life of the heart and the will. We have had great theologians who've emphasized each of these. One of our theologians of the heart is a fellow about whom you have heard a little bit on office hours. His name was Campigius Vitringa. He was born in the Netherlands in 1659, and he died in 1722 when Jonathan Edwards was about 19 years old. The American Revolution was about 54 years away. Charles Telfer is professor of biblical languages at Westminster Seminary, California, where he's taught since 2011. He's author of Wrestling with Isaiah, the Exegetical Methodology of Campigius Vitringa, on which we did an earlier episode of Office Hours. You can find that on the Office Hours page at wscal.edu slash office hours. His most recent book is the first ever English translation of Campigius Vitringa's book, The Spiritual Life. It features a foreword by Richard Muller, and it's available now through the bookstore at wscal.edu. Hi, Charles, and welcome back to Office Hours. Scott, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Our uh, brother Charles is struggling with a cold, but we will soldier on here. The listener knows who John Owen is and maybe who Francis Turretin is, but perhaps not Campigius Vitringa. Or maybe the listener heard the earlier episode but doesn't remember every detail. So, Charles, introduce us to him a little bit as a pastor or a scholar. Vitringa is one of the figures of the Dutch Second Reformation, Further Reformation, and he is an important figure at the end of the 17th, beginning of the early 18th century. He was a professor for all of his ministry at the University of Franeker, which was the third of the famous Dutch universities in those centuries, and he had a very large influence on students across Protestant Europe, students coming not only from the British Isles, France, but uh, a lot of students from Germany and even from uh, Hungary, a number of Hungarians, more than a thousand Hungarian students studied at the University of Franeker. And he influenced beyond Protestant circles in Europe through his writings, both in his Latin writings and in his writings for his own countrymen in Dutch, often which were often translated into other languages as well. So th- the title of this volume is the spiritual life. Of course, that brings to mind the word spirituality, which is a really important word in our culture and in our time. It's a powerful word. But Vitrigan didn't think about the spiritual life or spirituality quite the way that most of the authors might, whom one regularly finds, say, in the spirituality section at Barnes & Noble. So, what does he mean when he says the spiritual life? One of the reasons I wanted to use the title, The Spiritual Life, is precisely because of the modern interest in spirituality as opposed to religion. And I think that this book does provide a classic Protestant view on what Christian spirituality looks like in practice and in theory. So, I think that's very important. The original title of the book is an essay on practical theology or a treatise on the spiritual life. And... I was picking up for the English title, just that reference to the spiritual life. He has a very high view of the transforming power of regeneration in the life of an individual. When God begins to work in a person, 
it is a foundationally transforming work that God does in that person, transforming their affections, their fundamental dispositions, as well as he has a very realistic and deep understanding of the role of ongoing sin and weakness in the life of Christians. So it's both robust in its view of the power of God in the soul of man, so to speak, but also realistic in terms of the struggles and the challenges that face even the most advanced Christians. It was interesting, and I don't know how far we want to get into this, but he distinguishes between mosaic life, civil life, natural life, and the spiritual life. And that is something that I don't remember seeing before. I thought that was interesting way to think about the spiritual life. One of the categories he uses or one of the metaphors he uses is a developmental idea or an organic idea. Often when we think about spirituality, we might think about a sort of crashing, transformative, sudden change. That isn't exactly the way he thinks about spirituality, spiritual growth, or the spiritual life. Vidriga is very aware of the power and the limitation of metaphor, that scripture often presents us with God and in terms of Christ's teaching on the kingdom, for example, in terms of a variety of metaphors. And he likes to explore the power of a variety of metaphors and how they all point towards reality behind them without being overwhelmed by all the details of one particular metaphor. And many of the metaphors of the spiritual life are exactly that. They're metaphors of growth. And he explores that very effectively in terms of the seed and its growth or a tree and its fruit or a vine and its fruit, etc. Or the idea of children, adolescents, adults in First John. So this is a foundational metaphor for New Testament, for biblical authors and for Vitringa in this exposition. You've been a missionary, you've been a pastor, you've taught catechism classes, and you've sat in counseling rooms with people. We are influenced, whether we know it or not, by 19th century and 18th century revivalism, which is what I was hinting at earlier. To think of the Christian life as something that happens dramatically, suddenly, uh, radically, all at once. Contrast for us a little bit from your experience, that way of thinking of the Christian life and sanctification and the spiritual life and the way that Vitringa wants us to think about it, because these are really two different paradigms. And I don't know where the listener is right now, but it's quite possible that the listener is influenced by one paradigm and implicitly you're inviting him to another paradigm by saying, read Vitringa, learn from Vitringa. I think Vitriga has a multi-sided, complex approach to Christian growth. He appreciates how the simple things like the ministry of the Word of God and preaching week by week are foundational to Christian transformation and growth, how prayer is a difficult but an important and sometimes glorious, sometimes uh, inglorious practice that's essential for Christian growth. I think he also realizes that Christian growth has its ups and downs, but it can also have revolutions. It can have serious times of progress, but it can also have serious pitfalls and stumblings and lapses by all means. He's serious about that. The, the lapses and the pitfalls that face us as Christians, we're continually until we die facing temptations of a whole variety of sorts that are overwhelming. We're not for the power of God that's at our disposal in Christ. That's a very different understanding of the Christian life than is often held in contemporary evangelicalism, where, for example, we're one to watch the television, listen to Christian radio. One might well hear people saying that if you have enough faith, 
you will experience prosperity and blessing and live a triumphant Christian life going from conquest to conquest, power to power, if only you will do X. There's always some method, some mechanism to use. Whereas Vitringa is quite blunt about the struggle of the Christian life, the difficulties of the Christian life, and as you said, pitfalls is one of the words he uses, lapses in the Christian life. One we might call triumphalism and the other we might call realistic. Is that fair, you think? I think that's fair. He gives a whole chapter to the question of the rod of God as a means of development in the spiritual life, that chastening is an essential, ineluctable, inevitable part of the Christian experience. He breaks the idea of our growth as Christians into two categories. Those things that we can control, such as our prayer life, how we pursue Christian friendships, how we attend and how we take advantage of public worship, self-examination, things like that. And on the other hand, he talks about those aspects of Christian growth that we cannot control. And a very important part of that for him is this question of chastening, that God would use discipline on his sons and daughters, that he would put us through tough times. And it's precisely through those tough times that he often is most powerfully transforming us. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. We're talking with Charles Telfer about his new volume that he's translated. It's actually a book by Campigius Vitringa, The Spiritual Life. And we're getting to know both it and the author and thinking about what the Christian life looks like and uh, what the nature of spiritual growth is. When I first became a young evangelical in the mid-1970s, the first thing that I was taught and really the essence of the Christian life was to withdraw from activity, even in some cases from church, but to withdraw for a time of daily prayer and Bible reading. And that really became the sacrament, if I can say that, of the Christian life, the quiet time. And we had two books that we were uh, supposed to use back then. One said 959, digital clocks were a new thing. So (laughs) that was kind of hip then. And then for more mature Christians, it was 2959, 29 minutes and 59 seconds with God. And we were supposed to sort of carry this book around. And we had people to whom we were accountable, by whom we were being discipled and so forth. And so that was the be-all and end-all of the Christian life. Now, Vitringa is passionate about the necessity and the value and, as you said, the struggle of prayer in the Christian life. But he's also passionate about public worship and, in his career, did some work on the nature of public worship and the history of worship relative to the synagogue and so forth. Again, contrast for us a little bit Vitrinka's vision of the Christian life and the role of, for example, attending public worship over against that vision that says, really, Christian piety is all about private prayer. I think for Vitringa, the public means of grace and the preaching of the Word of God is foundational, that he's expecting God to speak to his people through the preaching week by week, and that this is a converting and a sanctifying ordinance that God has established as a standard in the life of all his, uh, his children. But there's no contrast between that and the private means, that private and family means of prayer are essential and they're things to be pursued and developed with vigor as well. Now, he wouldn't set them against each other, but he wouldn't have any sympathy for someone who said, well, what really matters is what happens in my private prayer time, my private Bible reading, and public worship is not important, really. It's kind of a second blessing. It's not consequential for Christian living or Christian growth. 
I agree. You'll notice that the original title is an essay on practical theology. So it's about practice as opposed to quietism, which yeah, was a popular... That? The idea of kind of let go and let God, the idea of the Christian life is something particularly negative of withdrawal from activity in general. So he's not a 17th century Dutch monk. No, by no means. Because that's important because in our time, when people think and talk about spirituality and piety, they think oftentimes about withdrawal. And the paradigm for it oftentimes is a kind of monastic paradigm. You and I are old enough to remember 20 years ago when it was very fashionable for erstwhile evangelicals to spend time in Franciscan monasteries and the like. I had friends that were doing that, that that was a fashionable thing to do. I found that striking for Protestants who were supposed to have a somewhat different notion of piety and spirituality, but the only paradigm they seem to have is a third or fourth or fifth century monastic paradigm. And that word active is really important for Vitringa. It's very interesting. He devotes a chapter to medieval practices of celibacy, voluntary poverty and blind obedience to spiritual superiors. Basically monastic life. Yes. And it's interesting how he handles those questions, which were obviously major points of contention between Protestants and Roman Catholics for a number of centuries at that point. He critiques those practices from a biblical point of view, but he tries to allow as opposed to overreacting, and this is very typical of Vitringa, not to simply overreact to whatever his opponent may be, but to try to give them credit where credit is due, and to see a place for celibacy for Christians, for the giving up of possessions for greater purposes. And also, he even goes so far as to suggest that there may be a place for communal living with groups of single Christian men living together, or groups of single women living together, but not under vows, kind of a Christian house of some sort. He goes that far, actually, to see that that might be of help, sure. but not, some, to, not to go under vows. I think that's an important distinction. And there were Protestants who did that sort of thing and have over time done that sort of thing. And I've had friends who have sort of lived together and created a little community. But then, you know, somebody meets a girl and they get married and they go on. So you're not stuck in that state and you're not married to this sort of monastic organization. So it's a voluntary thing. There's a famous Christian group of scholars in the Middle Ages called the the Brethren of the Common Life, who were composed of humanists of various kinds and would sort of come and go and had this kind of society together. So again, it's not monasticism exactly, but it's interesting that he's able to appreciate the value of that. Maybe when the kids are screaming <laughs> and they have colds, he's thinking, might not be a bad thing to hang out with <laughs> a bunch of scholars right now. You believe, but how did you come to faith? Did God elect you because he saw that you would believe? Did Christ die to make salvation available to those who do their part? Can a true believer fall away and be lost? These are just some of the questions that the Reformed churches from across Europe and the British Isles gathered to resolve at the Synod of Dort in 1618-1619. This year is the 400th anniversary of that synod, and we want you to join us on the campus of Westminster Seminary, California, for our annual conference, Friday and Saturday, January 18th and 19th, 2019. Remembering the Canons. That's January 18 and 19, 2019. The conference features talks by W. Robert Godfrey, Mike Horton, Joel Kim, Charles Telfer, and your host, R. Scott Clark. Register now by calling toll-free 888-480-8474, 888-480-8474, or online at wscal.edu, wscal.edu. 
Remembering the Canons in beautiful Escondido, California, January 18 and 19, 2019, on the campus of Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss out. Register now. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. We're talking with Charles Telfer about his new translation of Campigius Vitriga, first ever in English, and it's available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. And the title of the book is The Spiritual Life. One of the things that uh, Vitringa talks about in this book is uh, dispositions and habits. And I think, at least implicitly, I don't remember if he uses this word, but I think it's there, virtue. And these are not notes that one always hears sounded today when we talk about piety and spirituality. So what did he mean by habits and dispositions, and how do those lead to virtue for Vitringa? This question of habits, dispositions, virtues was a difficult translational point for me. He uses the word habitus in a number of slightly different ways, and it was difficult for me to translate that word. And I also wasn't super familiar with all the background to the whole discussion. For example, he talks about, when he's talking about the different states and degrees of growth as a Christian, he talks about foundational dispositions and spiritual capacities in one's spiritual life. And he says this includes a purity of understanding that enables a comprehension of spiritual things, a vigor, solidity, experience in judging and properly discerning spiritual things. Wisdom, prudence that enables a person to direct his actions to the glory of God and the benefit of his neighbor. Fourthly, spirituality of the affections, an experiential practice of Christian virtues confirmed by established habits and longstanding custom, a disposition of trust as one walks with God and the experience of relating to God in a worthy manner, growth in self-denial along with vigor and strength of mind to resist the temptations of the world and of the flesh, and finally, the experience of afflictions that test us and that must be borne with patience. Those are attitudes and dispositions, foundational capacities that he talks about. It is interesting. He's developing a virtue ethics, a discussion of the Christian life in terms of virtues and vices, in terms of imitating the mores of our Savior that often we don't hear about. And we're maybe kind of afraid of that becoming Protestant liberalism, just kind of imitate Jesus. But there's a lot to it. And he goes into a deep discussion of Christ's virtues and how those are to be played out in our own Christian experience. I think you're implying he is a Protestant. So he thinks that we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But as a consequence of that, we are also being progressively sanctified. And one of the consequences or outgrowths of that sanctification is a change in the way we are oriented to the world and a development within us, again, by grace, of these new dispositions, these new habits, these new patterns of thinking, ways of relating to the Lord and to others, and a way of living. And so this is a way, really, when we talk about habits and dispositions, of describing the gradual, progressive transformation of the life of the mind, the life of the affections, the life of the will, and the sort of growth in conformity to Christ. The Heidelberg Catechism says that sanctification or the Christian life is the dying of the old man and the making alive of the new. In a sense, that's really all he's doing here, isn't it, by talking about habits and dispositions and virtues? I think that's fair. Surely he's very emphatic on the grace of God as the foundation of our spiritual life in terms of in extrinsic justification and an intrinsic work of sanctification that the Lord's continuing to work in us, transform us on a daily basis. 
So when we hear in our circles virtue, probably don't react too much against that, but when we hear habits and dispositions, because we know that the medieval church had come to say, and Rome says, that we are justified through habits and dispositions, that sometimes when we hear that, people might react and say, well, we're against them. Well, no, we're not. When they are put in their proper place as the consequence of justification, as part of sanctification. So I thought that was interesting because I think you could pick up a lot of books on sanctification, on the Christian life, on spirituality and piety, and probably not read a lot about habits, dispositions, and virtues. So that seemed to be another way in which Vitringa is signaling, hey, this isn't the kind of spirituality that everyone talks about. I imagine you're completely correct there. I'm not well read in the history of Christian spirituality, but for Vitringa, these dispositions come out of regeneration. It's that transforming work of God that gives these abilities and renewed capacities to the believer. One of the interesting distinctions that he made was between generation, that is the initial granting of life, and regeneration, which he seemed to use at least at one point to describe sanctification, which I thought was interesting because in the 16th century, it's common for Reformed writers to use regeneration or renovation as synonyms for sanctification. And then around Dort, we begin to use regeneration more to describe the initial awakening from death to life. But then he goes on, as I said, to distinguish generation and regeneration, which I thought was kind of an interesting thing to do. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Well, one of the things that Vitringa does in this book is to orient the spiritual life as a life lived in union and communion with Christ. He says at one point, the rule of this spiritual life is not natural instinct, civil law, or bare rationality, but the light of the Holy Spirit himself. In Vitringa, there's a rich place for the person and work of the Holy Spirit. That's surely the case. And he emphasizes that even in the title, the spiritual life, that it's a life that is infused, that it is empowered, that it is culminated by the Holy Spirit. The final chapter has some wonderful, wonderful passages about our eternal relationship to Christ and the consummation of our connection with him. So, for example, he says at one point, the life of glory, he's exploring what it means to have eternal life, and he's exploring the idea that it's a glorious life. The life of glory is that blessed and glorious state of life into which believers are transported, who by faith have finished the course of this mortal life with perseverance. They will be freed from sin, misery, and all their consequences, such as all shame, sadness, grief, temptation, affliction, all reproaches, all vanities, and all the vicissitudes to which our status in this life is exposed. And they will delight in the happy and glorious life of heaven itself, enjoying in the house of their father fellowship and the closest connection to God, Christ Jesus, the angels, the patriarchs, the apostles, and the saints, and being enlightened by the glory of God and of Christ with perfect love and the highest pleasure, joy, and delight in a state that is absolutely secure and unchangeable. They will possess God and be possessed by him unto all eternity. Believers will have a foretaste of this life when their souls have been separated from their bodies, and they will receive its culmination when their bodies have been resurrected from death by the power of Jesus Christ and transformed into spiritual bodies, having been adjudicated by him on that great and solemn day that will put an end to the vanity of this age. This is the confidence of the saints and their most secure hope. This is the end of the struggle, the crown of the games, the palm of the race, and the triumph of faith. All desires lead to this. Such life is the incessant longing of all those who seek God. How beautiful. 
Yeah, it is. It's very striking. And so this is a fellow who is possessed with a kind of vision, who, by the way, had done a commentary on the Revelation, and so is possessed of a kind of vision of glory. And that sort of suffuses his account of the spiritual life, don't you think? Absolutely. He has such a passionate and a breathtaking view of the privileges that we have as Christians and that will come to their consummation around the corner when Christ returns to take us to himself. When I first read this book, I read this book in its French translation when I was working on my dissertation and I was reading a lot of very technical commentary material that was difficult to get through and sometimes less than scintillating. And I ran across this book, <laughs> an honest yeah. response there. Yeah. And I ran across this book and it captured my heart and it transported me at times. And I said, we must have this in English. And I said, if I ever get through this project, which I wasn't quite sure if I'd make it or not, <laughs> I'd reward myself with the pleasure of bringing this into English. And it's got some sections that are just beautiful and very moving. And that's why I did the project. There are people who say about Reformed theology that, as I said at the beginning, it's all about the intellect and that we don't have really a full doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And usually those criticisms come from a Pentecostal paradigm rather than from another one. But on our own terms, as I think you illustrate there in the passage you just read, Reformed theology, and Wittring in particular, really does have a deep appreciation for the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So that he does represent a different way of thinking about spirituality and our personal relationship to the Holy Spirit than is widely assumed in the sort of broadly Pentecostal approach to piety and spirituality. That's definitely the case. Every aspect of the Christian life and the practice of the Christian life is emotionally charged, is impactful. It addresses us as entire persons, not just as brains in a vat. For example, he has a section on the power of the Word of God that would be worth reading, if I might. Please. He says, all those gifted with healthy judgment and persuaded of the divine origin and authority of the word have recognized it to be a treasure whose value is impossible to conceive. Though God had instructed the human race about the way to live through reason, man willingly plunged himself into the most profound darkness from which no one could ever expect escape. How good of God to make the light of his word shine into the world and under the new economy to disseminate it to all nations so that now no mortal should lack a guiding light as he makes his way through the gloomy darkness of this life. Assuredly, the word of God is the light of God. He who reads it hears God speaking to him. He converses with God and with Christ Jesus himself. He recognizes in the voice and writings of the prophets and apostles the very voice of the Holy Spirit. This word is the fountain of life for him. It is medicine for his mind. It is food for his spirit. He finds here the delights of the celestial paradise. In scripture, there's nothing inferior or cheap, nothing fictitious or far-fetched, nothing false or mistaken, nothing dry or sterile. Everything is valuable, pure, solid, nourishing. If the meaning of certain texts is profound and difficult, this only serves to stimulate our curiosity, deepen our meditations, and sharpen our reflections on scripture. In short, the Bible expresses divine wisdom in every part and is worthy of its author, the most exalted and most rational God. The sayings of the Lord are pure, silver refined in a tile oven, purified sevenfold. Psalm 12, 6. Great stuff. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.